Hello and welcome to our podcast series Inside Impact Investing. My name is Hans Tegeman, Chief Economist at Triodos Bank. This season I'm diving into the concept of economic transformation and transformative investments. By talking to different thought leaders, I want to find out what is needed to make our economy more sustainable and how to finance the transitions that are needed in society. From the energy and the food transition to a more regenerative economy and a more equal distribution of wealth. Thanks for tuning in and joining me on this journey. Today I am talking to Gaia Harrington. Gaia is a Dutch econometrician, sustainability researcher and women's rights activist and a regular speaker on how sustainability issues interconnect. In 2020, she made global headlines with her master's thesis at Harvard University. In her research, Update to Limits to Growth, she assessed whether the predictions of the original Limits to Growth report from 1972 are supported based on today's data. Her conclusion, the predictions made back then still hold through today. Without major changes to our use of resources, economic growth will peak around 2040 and then rapidly decline. Gaia, welcome. Thank you. Nice to have you here. Glad Let's to start here. with your book and the not very optimistic prediction you have in there. Did you expect that when you started or when you started your research for your book or your article? Yeah, let's start by framing it right from the yeah. get-go. It's not a prediction. It's a warning. Yeah, that's uh, right. So that if we stay, but we're not destined to ecosystem collapse. I think that was one of the key messages. We are certainly still following business as usual. If we keep doing this, collapse will be unavoidable, but we're not there yet. And so when this came out, this whole collapse thing wasn't every headline because editors just, they can't resist it. But it's a little bit more of a nuanced message. So did I expect this? That we're still following business as usual, as was forecasted in the 70s by that uh, limits to growth model. Yes, that was unfortunately not surprising to me. What was surprising to me was uh, the response, because it went a little bit viral at the time. And people were like, oh my God, we're destined for collapse. And I was like, yeah, you didn't notice? You didn't know that we've been above (laughs) Earth's carrying capacity for for, like since the 70s? Or like this climate change, you didn't hear of it? You didn't hear we were living in the sixth mass extinction? So that part actually was surprising to me. And if you look back at that discussion, so so when it went viral, did you also have a feeling that people in the end were only looking for the big disaster and something like that and not looking into the details of what you did or what you researched? Yes, um, but this is, this. I mean, I think, first of all, I think this is what every sustainability researcher is grappling with obviously that's what happened to the limits to growth at the time yeah. that it was it was also very much interpreted as a prediction of doom yeah. and it was always a warning that we needed to fundamentally change our society right and that's always been the message and it was mine as well yeah but if you take it as a warning and you see what has happened like you said since the 70s we follow business as usual and business as usual is for the listeners that's not the best way that we can have society in the future. The warning did not result in any action then. No, not sufficiently yet. But, you know, one of the things that you learn from um, systems thinking, because that's what the limits to growth model was. It was the first system dynamics model of the world. I have my first master's was in econometrics. So I'm very, actually very familiar with the more uh, mainstream economic models. There's a lot of linearity in there. Uh, Most variables are exogenous. 
And systems thinking and, and modeling is a very different kind of way where you model all variables can interact with one another, which is, I yep. think, a much better way to actually model the world because we're, that's a very, very complex system. And one more, less modeling, but more of the, the, the fundamental lessons from systems thinking is that large complex systems have a lot of delay. Yep. And so it's important to not give up too quickly, to expect that this kind of mindset shift would occur as soon as we hear the first warning is probably not realistic. I do see that there's a lot of, you, you see that people, they want deep systemic changes to the political systems and economic systems. You see this in surveys. Mm -hmm. So my message was we have to make drastic changes for the better, but still transformative changes. And we, and that window of opportunity is closing fast. But it's too soon to give up yet. Yeah. No, that's also definitely not what we try to do here at Triados. Maybe that's, if you look at the, the title of your book, is Five Insights for Avoiding Global Collapse. Is that, yeah, I think the end is global collapse is not that positive, but is the reason that you wrote the book maybe also to show that it is possible to avoid global collapse, to have that future and, and, and that you should, Yeah, a warning helps, but it's not uh, something to despair in the end. Yeah, I think that's that's very accurate, actually, because that's why I always keep correcting this message of doom that's so often implicit in when you talk about collapse. Because it's, like I said, we, we need uh, drastic changes, but they're really for the better. What I'm talking about and what other people are talking about when we discuss these things like well-being, economics, that kind of thing, you know, it's really this message of, well, Why would growth be the ultimate goal of the economy anyway? Why? Why? Because the argument, of course, is that, well, but that's how you lift people out of poverty. The yep. track record isn't that great, right? I mean, yep. we've done this for a couple of decades, at least in the rich countries. Wouldn't that have happened by now? But we still see poverty even in those countries. So why don't we just do it directly? Not through growth, but directly. If we do that then that is not a society that's just avoiding collapse. It's a society where people are, are positively thriving. Yeah. You touch, I think, on one of the essential points also, I think, in the limits to growth in 1972. And that's, and I have a quote out of your book, which was the quote from Meadows and Meadows in 2007. And that, that quote is, there's a primary cause of continuous critical problems, and it is growth exponential growth of energy use, material flows, and population against the Earth's physical limits. And I think, if I understand correctly, also in your book, what you tried to address, and also what you said before, is that we should not be degrowth per se, or pro-growth, but agnostic to growth might be the best way to perceive, and then we'll see what happens. Is, is that correct? Yeah. That's that's absolutely correct. Yeah, you're so you're a growth. You're not anti-growth, of no. course. My attitude is one of, you know, if growth contributes to human and ecological well-being, great. If it doesn't, why bother, right? That's true. I only have one problem with it. If we now transgress ecological boundaries, given the economic activity currently, then we should have less growth to start with, or we should shrink. Yeah, so now you're touching on what we see in, in indeed in the in the developed or richer countries right now, including in the Netherlands, is that we're talking about degrowth, and I think it's good to to distinguish a little bit between these post-growth economic frameworks that I mentioned. So, yep. donut economics is another example, right, where you're all 
looking at where clearly they all have in common that we let go of growth as the ultimate pursuit. And we're, we're looking for an, an economy where things are more in balance. It's very interesting how I think what we, the model we have now is sort of a linear model. So you always have a, ideally in this system, you have an upwards line, yeah. which is of course completely untenable if you live in a finite system, which we do. And all these other economic frameworks, they're, you could describe them more in a symbol, you could express them more as a circle, right? So there's this yeah. notion of balance, but you are right to get there since we are already above our footprint we we need to degrow and i think that's what degrowth is it's a very because they don't prescribe this to no. the global south right Definitely it's very not. clear no. yes this is a, a common misunderstanding that they're against growth in yeah. <laughs> sub-saharan africa which is of course nonsense uh, so it's a very clear pathway to getting us back below ecological boundaries while making that transition equitable Completely agree. Did, I think this is one of your five key insights, right? Uh, if I'm correct. Okay, can, yes. you, can you also tell the, those, those others that help to avoid collapse? Let's do that. We've already covered at least two of them. Yeah, so the first yeah. insight is, uh, <laughs> is we are connected. Yeah. So that's what we yeah. talked about, right? Everything's connected. I think this is quite, and that's why I speak about a mindset shift. Because we've been acting for a long time, for the past few decades, as if we can control our global system, right? And it, as a simple collection of isolated parts. And if you do that, you make things ugly because we can't. And it's, this is quite fundamental, I've noticed, because I've spoken at, at, about systems thinking sometimes in C-suites. There's always one person who gets very nervous from what I'm saying. And at the beginning, I was like, why is, why is he getting so nervous? And I think it's because it's this notion that you, things can happen to you and you, they're out of your control. Mm-hmm. And some people get really nervous and just need having to acknowledge that. But this is what, what, what's going yeah, and on. You, and you said also in your book that it's uh, women are better to cope with it, right? In general, and I was quoting somebody else who also yeah. had this experience, yeah. women and younger people. Yeah. And I think that's simply because, you know, the younger generation, they're very familiar with this influencing and stuff. Influencers can make you do anything. Yeah. but So they know the power of influencing the system, but never controlling it. And I think older men are much more used to having this illusion of control, which is always ultimately an illusion, right? But at least they had that for a yeah. while. Yeah. <laughs> And so the second insight is growth is not a good goal. So we already yeah. covered that, which is interesting because it is it is portrayed as the solution to a lot of these problems that we talked about. And I think that was one of the, the, the well, that was the brilliance of the Limits to Growth book at the time in the 70s already that they say, actually, what we are offered as a solution is the root cause of these problems. And they will keep coming back unless we let go of this growth pursuit at all costs. And then so insight three is that we need to fundamentally change society's priorities if we want to avoid significant declines from our current levels of well-being. So their model and my research confirms that indeed empirical data, because now we have a few decades worth of empirical data, right? So that's what I did in my research. I compared empirical data with the model's output at the time, and we're pretty close aligned. So... That means that I think we should take their message seriously. And their model indicates that growth will halt for us at the global level within the next decade, one way or another. Yeah. So either we choose our own limits, so we consciously stop pursuing growth in, in, in stuff, right? Industrial output materials, and consciously, deliberately shift that, shift those resources towards well-being. So education, 
housing, all those kind of things, healthcare, of course. And then we choose our own limits in, in that sense, or the limits are forced upon us through ecosystem breakdown. Yeah. And then we have collapse. And that was what we want to avoid. So Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, I think ultimately for the rich countries, and that's what degrowth does as well. I think degrowth is a managed collapse because it's yeah. still a steep decline, right? Absolutely. But it's in a way that also our welfare levels don't decline with it as well. That's yeah. the key difference. Yeah. Then we're at four, I think. Yes. <laughs> and so inside four, it's time is of the essence to make this change. So, and that's what I come back to with where we started. The model uh, also shows that there is a way actually to stabilize our welfare levels at the current level. So the limits to growth model indicates that right now we are at peak welfare levels. Mm -hmm. And so we have a choice. We can maintain them throughout the rest of the century or they can go down if we keep pursuing business as usual. But there is still a way to make these, these changes and really change at the societal level what we pursue and what we think is, is valuable really to, to devote our daily lives to. And then we can maintain our levels for the rest of the century. So the window of opportunity is closing fast. Basically what we're doing, what we, we will do in, from now and, and until the next decade will determine humanity's welfare levels for the rest of this century. So before 2030, we have to uh, make bold choices. Yeah, and we know this, right? We see yep. this, we have, we have, see this from all the other frameworks as well. Yep. This is obviously nothing new. I think one of the, the, the differences is that we look at the, the core, the root causes. And so, for example, green growth, right? Still hangs on to growth. I think that's absolutely not going to cut it, for example. Uh, so so it, this this one, and I think that's all the five, uh, also interrelate, of course, because if you don't have a fun, fundamental change, you waste time and you hang on to growth and you don't think as a connected system most of the times because it's exactly. very reductionist. So exactly. We have to... Yeah. First Which four. is, in my opinion, what you see all the time when people talk about green growth, they look at very separate small successes, breakthroughs. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's great. We have a new technology. Doesn't change anything about no. the fact that our global footprint is still rising. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. Agree. And so inside five is then, and I think this is very important uh, because we have all grown up in this paradigm of growth is good, right? And so as soon as you say, well, but if we stop the growth pursuit, then we just stop progressing. And I think this is, a, this is an unexamined assumption that is false, but mm -hmm. a lot of us, of us have it, you and I as well, even despite what we know and what we do, because we've grown up in this, right? We've come to expect We've come to equate progress with, with um, expansionary growth, but it's quite the opposite, I think, because I think it's also quite clear that this relentless pursuit of growth has proven to be degenerative ecologically, but also socially, right? It's been spurring wealth and income inequality, staring at our social fabric, all those things. So when you have a society that's shaped around a new narrative, that's basically what we're talking about, right? Just a narrative that's ascribing purpose to us as human beings, to fostering human and ecological well-being, then what we have is, is a society where that has new definitions of success and mm -hmm. what prosperity looks like. And basically we will have matured, I think far beyond what I said, the mere avoidance of collapse and just have learned to, instead of going for always more, just simply better. I have to admit, I agree to 
I think everything you said. Um, <laughs> I have only one big question where I want to spend the rest of the time on. And of course, it's also in your book, and and you say also with with your last point, we have to have an, an a new narrative, and we have to have fundamental changes. I work at a bank, at Triodos Bank, and what we try to do and what we've done for the last 40 years is to finance change or change finance, at least try mm-hmm. to, uh, so mm-hmm. to to work in a, in a transformation. But what I'm currently really, well, struggling, but also so looking for how we could do it, we have a financial system which is partly growth dependent or at least leads to more leverage in the system and more leverage in mm. the system makes it more growth dependent, et cetera, et cetera. And the way we calculate everything and the way we finance is not based on other values than financial values, although we want to have impact. So the question to you is also, what do you see should be the role of finance to achieve that new narrative and also to speed up the change and to uh, to deliver on all those five points of view? Mm. No, I agree that right now, Triodos Bank and other more progressive banks excluded, uh, right now the, the financial sector is, is is not really helping. It's it's If anything, it's supporting that growth imperative, mm-hmm. right? We have um, over-financialization. Uh, I, I think the financial sector by itself is too big in the first place. We saw just recently with the the banks that collapsed in in the U.S. that that leads to the too big to fail conundrum, which is a very old problem. Yeah. It's just it has been addressed to some extent, but not to the extent that it's been solved. Simply put, apart from that, it's not even these crises that we see every 10, 15 years, um, because of the fragility that's inherent in the system, right? There's also the, the everyday over-financialization where every single business in the economy is now in the grip of these financial metrics mm-hmm. that you talk about. Every business has this, this, almost every business has this imperative or feels this pressure to deliver quarterly results, which is just not uh, helpful for if we want to make these long-term investments. And it's not even good for those companies themselves. So in that sense, the, I think the financial sector is also destabilizing at the moment. I don't think it needs to be. I think it's important to realize that the financial sector should be, and historically has always been, wholly embedded in the wider economy. Mm-hmm. This is currently not the case. Again, it's too big. It's actually much bigger than the real economy. Yep. But it should be in its rightful place. It should be embedded within the economy, which in and of itself, of course, is embedded within society, which then is embedded within the environment. And I think we've actually, at this point, turned it completely upside down in terms yep. of size, which is why everything is so unstable. But I don't think it needs to be that way. I think um, once we... Well, if and when we change the economic system, for example, the financial system will change along with it because ultimately, again, it is embedded in it. Okay, but that's, I think, an important remark you make because we have a lot of discussions about sustainable finance and and I think a lot of policymakers expect that the financial system will deliver a more sustainable economy. I doubt it personally. I think the economy should be more sustainable and then the financial system should serve that system. Absolutely. Don't you think there's a, there's a big misunderstanding if you're going to 
and especially in Europe, I think it's completely different in the US. I know it's different in the US, but in, in Europe, there, there are so many sustainability regulations making mm. sustainable finance very complex. And I question myself sometimes, okay, does this lead to a sustainable economy or does it only lead to more regulation mm. in the financial system without mm. any result in the real economy? Yeah, I, I think what I'm hearing you say is basically there these regulations are not getting to the heart. They're not transformative. They're just a patchwork of green stuff. I think it's very important to keep the distinction between green or ecological or even sustainable and, and truly regenerative economics, so to say. I think those are two key differences. If you look at sustainable finance and ESG, for example, this is all relative. It's yeah. just better which means less bad. It doesn't, it's not in any way absolute where you see, okay, is this improvement to the extent that we need to curb climate change, to reverse biodiversity loss? Because in that sense, it's nowhere near. No. And I think those, those are two distinctions we need to keep in mind very carefully before we applaud another like uh, green discovery. I mean, it's great, but it's, uh, we need way more of that. I do think that when you talk about, you mentioned, will it come from the financial sector? I think it needs to come from the government because these mm -hmm. are systemic problems. Only the government can do that. And I think this belief that the market will, will somehow solve it is, is very entrenched. It's another thing that we've grown up with. These ideas that innovation and true change only comes from the private sector is actually not that much based in reality. It's a very strong dogma that we've been yeah. taught, but you, you you undoubtedly are familiar with, for example, the work of Mariana Matsukato that shows that, well, actually a lot of innovation has come from the government, also US government. Yeah. They're just very poor marketeers in that sense because very few Americans know this. <laughs> yeah. um, so I... I think, uh, of course, the financial sector has a unique role to play, an important role to play. The private sector, I work at a private uh, sector organization. They, we work in the energy transition. Obviously, those have roles to play, but there's a key role for government. A we need a strong government. Yeah. Okay, last big question to elaborate about. I think it's a challenge to deliver upon those five points you have in your book. And I'm always wondering, so it's it's very easy. So if I hear people talk about sometimes also myself, uh, it's very easy to have a vision. It's also very easy to say this are the systemically wrong points in that we have. But how do we start a transition which is also very fast, etc.? So if you would have the power, which is quite impossible, and you said public institutions, the government has to play a large role. So if you were the president of the US, to make it easy, and in any way you were completely responsible and, and make it happen that it will be implemented, what would be the first three steps, three mm. things you would do? Yeah, so I will answer that, but I would like to challenge the notion that it's easy to have a vision. I think it takes <laughs> a lot of bravery <laughs> to put that out. Yeah, I think. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> There's a disproportionate uh, risk to life for true visionaries, uh, I think, in history. Yeah. It takes a lot of emotional resilience because you're always surrounded by people who say, you can't do that. That's nonsense. Yeah. And those people, you seldom make history. But um, uh, apart from that... Uh, you, you know, you're going to make history now. So there's uh, three points. <laughs> <laughs> So three points, you know, so the Limits to Growth book was commissioned by the Club of Rome. 
mm-hmm. at the time. In the meantime, I've been asked as an advisor to be an advisor to the Club of Rome and I've contributed to a book, a 50-year anniversary book, Earth for All, mm-hmm. which basically they were very gracious. They were more gracious about it than the way I put it now, but it was basically, okay, so you, you, you didn't really listen that time. So what do we do now? So they built a new model of the world and they said, these are the five leverage points in the system that we need to work on if we want to make this transformation as quickly as we need it. And those five points are energy, obviously, that's, that's unsurprising. Regenerative agriculture, our food system is, is, very, is very destructive, completely unsustainable, but we need to eat. Um, and there are ways to do that, but not in the current ways, which is, of course, driving desertification and mass biodiversity loss. And the other three are social, actually, which is very interesting because they found that unless we make, for example, the energy transition equitable, very much in line with degrowth, for example, it's not going to happen. So the Yellow Jackets protests in France, for example, are a great example. Those people didn't really protest action against climate change, but they did protest that the burden was disproportionately shoved onto the poorer people. And I think that's fair. So the, the third one is reduce economic inequality, so income and wealth within countries. The fourth one is reduce poverty globally. So that's between countries because the, yeah. the income and wealth inequalities are even starker between countries, if you can imagine it. And the fifth one is a gender equality, which is a huge leverage point for maybe, yeah, I mean, really quite obvious if you think about it, because we're underutilizing half the population and we need all hands on deck. Yeah. So to answer your question, it depends on which country I'm president uh, of. The U.S. Make Let's say the U.S. Yeah. In that case, I would say because we're such a large producer and consumer of energy and also of food, uh, let's start with those first two. And then, of course, reduce income and wealth inequality because that's just yeah. the income. I'm com- I was born and raised in the Netherlands and um, income and wealth inequality is a growing problem there as well, obviously. But then still the contrast of that coming to the U.S., uh, you just look at, at, at these people and you're like, well, what, what are you doing to one another? Why are you okay with this? Why it's the, you know, people, their very basic needs of healthcare, the lack of access to education, you know, Europeans, sometimes they like to make jokes about uh, dumb Americans. Uh, The truth is they're not dumb. They're just so undereducated because they don't have any access to education. Yeah. I'm always wondering if people don't have the mental space, if they're only in need for food or income, how can you expect from them that they think about the transition? So you, you can't. Th- that's yeah. that's definitely not inclusive if you don't have your basic needs. So there, it always starts. And then, and, and as, as psychological research shows yeah. this very clearly that yeah. people who are struggling on that level of, of, of existential anxiety, their IQs just drop points. Yeah. And if the impact, if the poverty impact is temporary, you see it actually bounce back. So it's a very that's that's just happen. It's just how we're wired. So yeah. you're absolutely right. That's why this emphasis on well-being you see in all these these degrowth and all economic frameworks. Thank you, Gaia. I, I think we have two times five points, five points to avoid collapse, and five solutions uh-huh. in the end from Earth for All. Yeah, and exactly. also <laughs> some points you you will start as a president with. I really hope this also inspires our listeners to think about what they can do. So it's not only, this is kind of abstract and complex. And yes, we embrace complexity, but it's also in the end about what people can do, but also where people put their money, because I think that also makes a difference every time. Mm -hmm. So thanks for joining us. And for all our listeners, thanks for listening to this episode. Don't forget to follow us on Spotify to make sure you don't miss any updates. 
And as always, we are happy to hear your feedback. Until next time. <laughs>